Welcome to the second series of By Design. My name is Bruce Boucher, and I'm director of Sir John Soane's Museum. Soane's idea for his museum was to be an academy of the arts, where art, architecture, and design could be discussed, explored, and celebrated. It's with this in mind that we have collaborated with Luke Irwin, the distinguished rug designer, who feels passionately about the role of design and whose support has been fundamental to this series. Chaired by Alice Roththorne, design writer and critic, and Will Gompertz, artistic director at the Barbican, these talks explore the impact of design on several internationally renowned designers. And you can find podcasts of the first series on our website, sewn.org. For this second series, we invited Dan Pearson, Ilsa Crawford, Erdem Moraliolu, Amanda Levite, and Phyllida Barlow to present an object that has inspired them, and through that object, to reflect on their own design practice. We originally launched the second series in February 2020 with Alice Roththorne talking to the designer Dan Pearson at the Sone. And we're pleased to present the remaining talks through a series of individual events filmed at the museum. Thanks to our collaboration with Luke Irwin, we are not charging for these talks, but it would be wonderful if you would consider making a contribution, which would enable us to continue our wider learning programs. And you can do so on Sone.org. I hope you enjoyed the talk. Ilsa Crawford is one of our most influential designers who has championed a humanistic approach to design to foster our well-being individually and collectively. Ilsa pioneered sustainable and nurturing design, first as founding editor of Elle Decoration UK magazine, and then by beginning the Man and Wellbeing programme at Design Academy Eindhoven in the Netherlands, where she taught for 20 years. In 2003, she opened Studio Ilsa, a multidisciplinary design practice in London, where she and her team have pursued a humanistic approach to interior design and developed sustainable products for IKEA and other brands. So Ilsa, welcome. And in the grand tradition of By Design Talks, the Sewn Museum has invited you to choose one object that you find particularly inspiring. So what is it and why did you choose it? Um, maybe inspiring is um, pushing it, <laughs> but it's certainly a metaphor, I think, for our profession. So I have chosen a tape measure. So long as it works, it doesn't really matter what type it is, and I think I've probably lost more tape measures than I can count. But what I love about the tape measure is it is the reality of what we all as designers do. And I've got a fantastic quote from Louis Kahn here, which is, you know, he, he talks about how design, the making of things, is a measurable act. And, you know, underneath it all, that is true. But underneath that is the truth that a, a great or even a good building must begin with the unmeasurable, must go through the measurable in the process of design, but must again, in the end, be unmeasurable. So I think the tape measure in some way embodies that sort of contradiction um, in design, that it is a process that is granular and rational and needs to be communicated. But in the end, what we are making is values that become visible through the process of design. So how did you discover design and why did you decide to devote your working life to it? 
Um, I think design discovered me, to be honest. I don't think I was really aware of design as a profession. Um, I grew up um, as the sort of product, I would say, of a very measurable man, an economist, um, and a totally unmeasurable woman um, who studied art at Chelsea School of Art and thought nothing of throwing five kids um, behind her and hitchhiking to the other end of the country to see a Michael Powell movie if she thought we should see it. So as you can imagine, there were plenty of rows, but I came to understand both points of view. And in some ways, I think design is the marriage of that. And you have had an eclectic background, um, a journalist, founding editor of El Deco, and also a long commitment to teaching, as well as your own design practice. So what have you learned from those other strands in your career? I think that we are all the sum of our experiences. Um, and in many ways, journalism, and you know, you were one, still are one in a way, but in different media, um, is a fantastic profession. I mean, it's really an opportunity, I think, to interrogate, um, to understand, to gain insights, to then communicate that to a bigger audience. So it's a extraordinary training, I think, in understanding the world and making sense of it. And I think that design is the next step from that, actually. It's a natural step of making those values visible. And in some ways, whether it's small or large, by doing that, encouraging others to do the same, being a catalyst, if you like, for change. So did you find your journalistic experience and also your experience as an editor, and you were a hugely successful editor at, at El Deco, have they been practically useful in your work in design and also in your teaching? I would say 100%, yes. Um, because I think those skills that I just mentioned of um, interrogation and insight and imagination and com communication are useful across the board. And I think they help you understand subject matters. So in teaching, for example, unpacking subject matters and going on that journey with the students, looking at them from all angles, looking at them from the data perspective, looking at them from the human perspective, from the social perspective, etc. I think it's a fantastic um, training to have for teaching. And the same for design. I mean, with every project, we start with that process of research um, and understanding before remotely starting on a design response to that. That process of looking at um, the systems behind things, at looking at the context, at looking at the cause and effect of what we might do is you know, transformational, it really changes your perspective. And similarly, um, how did your teaching feed into your understanding of design and your practice? Teaching is a 
remarkable profession in that you are, by definition, acting as a coach to the next generation. And I think, you know, you're not teaching them anything per se, in my opinion, but I think you are um, clarifying their processes, giving them um, a sounding board, really, to develop their arguments, and pointing them in good directions to find information, data, inspiration, and so on. So, I mean, it's an amazing way to, in a shared, um, safe place, I would say, explore ideas that will impact the future, that will be the future together. And why did you decide to set up your own design practice? Um, I didn't really decide to set up my own design practice. I am very much a worker. I roll my sleeves up, I get on with stuff. And I had set up as a freelancer and, and was working. And one day my accountant said that I had to register for VAT, so I should probably call myself something. And it kind of rolled from there. It rolled from the practice of work. And, you know, we became official in 2003. But really it has been a consequence of doing the work rather than an intentional, I'm going to set up a design studio. So what were the milestones of, of Studio Ilsa? We got bigger very slowly. I would say the first seven years or so, we were, you know, working from a small apartment. There were five or six of us. Um, and we worked on the early Soho House project, which is probably something we're quite well known for, defining the DNA of that brand in the very early days with Babington, Soho House, Electric, etc. Bigger projects started to come our way and more diverse projects. So that led to us growing, basically, quite organically. Um, when you look back, I suppose it's always much easier to look back at HEM, I think, was a defining project. I think working with ESOP was a defining project. The IKEA collection, as you earlier mentioned, was a defining project. But we did many, many other projects alongside that, you know, maybe are slightly less well-known, and you learn through doing. So in a way, every one of them, for us at least, was defining. Very tactful. And how many people are you now? And can you give us an idea of the range of projects you're currently working on in terms of their scale? The studio is currently around 15 people. Um, we have three teams, and each team has a combination of architects, interior designers, that's FF&E as they're known. Um, we also have product design and journalists working in the studio. Currently, we have been working on a number of design strategies, which I find really important because by addressing the beginnings of projects, um, it's possible to embed humanistic values, environmental values, um, well-being values at the very beginning. And that means that it's embedded in the budget, it's embedded in the planning submission, it's embedded in 
the operational strategy that they have. So that means there's far more chance of it surviving what is a very challenging process, often over many years. And what does Studio Ilsa stand for? As you said at the beginning, Alice, um, we are um, basically obsessed by the idea of embedding humanistic values into our projects, whether they are environments, products, or even experiences. Um, and for us, that means that we want to have a positive impact on mental and environmental outcomes. It means we investigate the systems behind things. It means we look into the context, social, cultural, economic, etc. Um, it means we anticipate cause and effect of any interventions we might make. So it really is an approach that is looking at design as a way of squaring the circle, if you like, trying to join things together that previously have been looked at in silos. And currently this approach, thankfully, is increasingly fashionable. These are core concerns for progressive private sector clients and for many young designers. But you were championing well-being and this nurturing ethically and environmentally responsible approach to design long before it became popular. Is, is it an easier sell now to, to clients? We are known for that and it is true, um, increasingly the people who approach the studio come to us for that. That doesn't mean though that it's always the case in the wider world and I think finding the right clients and doing that process together with those clients is still key. I think that there are a lot of people who, um, you know, as they say, want to go to heaven but don't want to die. As one client said to us recently, because we were pushing for obviously more sustainable sourcing, but that costs 10% more. <laughs> so yeah, you know, there is that reality and I think there's a long way to go, but I think that it's accelerating, definitely. So could we now look in detail at a couple of your projects? You've chosen four of them to talk about. Um, so we can consider the thinking behind them and also how the finished project reflects the values that are so important to you. In the late 60s, Bobby Kennedy famously said that, talking about GDP, that the problem with GDP was that it measured everything except that which makes life worthwhile. And our aim with all our projects is to try to bring those two together, as I've, as I've said. And I think the projects, particularly the ones I'm going to talk about, are always trying to bring together those soft values with something that works. Because obviously, you know, a project has to work, One, you have to, you know, it might be commercially, it might be pragmatically, those measurable values, going back to the tape measure, you know, it has to work. But it is possible, I strongly feel, to bring those together. And I think it's how to do that with design that I think is what is so interesting. 
and challenging. I mean, it is, has certainly been true in recent years, even more so than in the 60s, that you know, we idolise, if you like, hard and measurable financial value. And very often, talking about the more humanistic values is seen as being, you know, kind of fluffy. It's something that we have to justify. Nowhere more so, oddly, I think, than in, you know, the care sector. And I think that's partly because it's often on very tight budgets. And the so-called functional aspect of what needs to be done is so very, very apparent. Caring professionally and care that um, respects a human's dignity, that um, values individuals, I think are sometimes very different. Um, you know, and I think that idea of embedding care at every level of a design makes it much easier for people using it, for people working it, to feel a part of an idea that I think can bring those sometimes contradictory values together. So, you know, it's a truism that good design can help people feel good and valued. But a project that we did recently um, for Refertory Affiliates, I think, is a really good example of how that can work really, really well. Refertory Felix was previously known as St Cuthbert's, which was a soup kitchen, a really good one, and run by people who did really care. But the environment that they were working in was, you know, fairly puritanical. It was an old church hall. Nothing wrong with it, but pretty functional in the way that we understand that word and normally. They teamed up with Food for Soul, which is an NGO, which in turn teamed up with um, Project Felix, which is an NGO that works with food waste, and pulled in Studio Ilsa to elevate the offer, basically. The brief was brilliant, which was you know, to bring dignity to the table. We approached it by really thinking about the things that would create a community, create a place where people wanted to hang out. It was a completely different atmosphere because we focused on what would bring people together, what would make them hang out. So small micro details, you might say, you know, plants, um, really good tabletop, making the whole atmosphere comfortable in that sense of, you know, making people feel really at ease. Great chairs, which Vitra kindly donated, um, beautiful lighting, soft lighting, beautiful colours. It's about making places that we feel good in together, bringing people together. That was certainly clear from conversations I had with the clients. One guy said, when I asked him whether he thought it was, you know, frankly, a bit silly, he said, absolutely not, you know. The point is, it shows that someone cares. And the point is that it's a place they want to be together. Yeah, and that comment about feeling that someone cares is heartbreaking and so important. Um, 
I think we have a tendency to um, put things that we are uncomfortable with somehow in a box away. You know, away is something that I think we've specialised in in the past. And I think all of these issues are our own issues and we need to use design to bring us together to build bridges rather than to divide. And it is a great example of that. So, number two. Number two, Ethem, which is a you know, high-end hotel in Stockholm. It's 12 bedrooms. Everything is an opportunity, I think, to change perception. Everything's an opportunity to make values visible. And typically, I think, those high-end hotels are really about visible signs of status, if you like, typically, whatever that is, whether it's money or, you know, culture or, you know, and that really overrides the sort of so-called humanistic um, approach. At Hem is in an arts and crafts building, so 1910, and what we did was to take, if you like, the sort of very humanistic values of the arts and crafts movement and updated them, so this idea of a sort of intense domesticity being the, you know, crowning achievement of human cultural endeavour, which was very much the mantra. We said that there should be no front or back of house, and to be honest, there wasn't really space for it either. But, you know, we used the difficulty there. So the hotel happens in front of your eyes. I mean, you know, the flowers are, arrive in front of you, the, you eat in the kitchen, the laundry goes in and out in front of you. It's, you're really part of the staging of this entirety. And the result has been extraordinary. I mean, it's a very lovely thing. I mean, it's very much based on its context. So aesthetically, it's very much based on the you know, Swedish way of life. Updated, I would say. Um, but the feeling that you get from the staff is fantastic. It's really their place and you feel part of it. And there's a mutual respect, I think, that happens because of the way that it works. But that's designed. It didn't happen by accident. It was you know, very intentional. I have stayed there and it is as great as you're describing it. The next one I'd love to talk about is actually not a design in the end. It's a design strategy. Design strategy is such an important part of what we do anyway. We always do it as part of our projects. But we sometimes do it without doing the design because money is going to be frankly challenging for a lot of projects and they can't always afford to take design right the way through to the end. I mean, it's desirable, but you know sometimes you have to think of other ways of doing it. Oftentimes, a very good plan can get you an extremely long way. I mean, it's definitely better than not having a plan. One project that we have worked on in that way, collaboratively, is in Hamburg, and it's called the New Institute. And it's a quite interesting organisation. It's an NGO. It's set in nine buildings in Hamburg. It's basically an institute for advanced studies, and they call themselves a platform for change. And they bring academics and practitioners, so that's activists, artists, politicians, together under nine roofs, to analyse and then create 
plans for action to address the key issues of our time, be it democracy, environment, the human condition, etc. So big issues. But what's really fascinating is that they have this diversity of expertise that they bring together. So they've currently got fellows from Santa Barbara in philosophy, from Berlin in economics, from Cambridge, digital ethics, from Venice, environment, working together um, for, you know, sometimes over a year on specific topics. Um, and then engaging with activists and politicians and so on on these topics. So we came in to figure out, again, how to deinstitutionalize the institution, how to create a building that in some way embodied these brand values and made it possible to have a space that, if you like, embodied democracy, inspired hope, created the conditions for these people to work together. And very different people, obviously very different skill sets, some measurable, some rather less measurable, all together under one roof. And the interesting thing about doing the strategy was also by just touching bricks and mortar, you start to have to define the brand values. Initially, of course, the ambition was always in place, but a word that had fallen to the bottom of the list, in fact, I'm not even sure if it was even on the list, was care. And in fact, now, that is the core value for the building, is care for each other, care for the projects that they're working on. Care really as a value that can bring society together and heal in many cases, issues that badly need addressing. So fascinating that the design strategy ended up influencing the core values of the organisation in terms of its debate and debates as well as um, more functional design outcomes. Because I think once you start to make things real, the blindingly obvious <laughs> becomes obvious. But actually, when you're looking at things theoretically, and especially with the sort of heritage of language that we've been discussing, those words seem kind of weak, you know, when you're talking about the idea of, you know, democracy and big words. Um, but in the end, none of those bigger concepts stand a chance if you don't care. The last example, is product and I think while you know we are talking about carpets or tables or benches it seems maybe you know not um, on the same scale of impact perhaps as some of the projects that I've mentioned but I think they really are because the interesting thing about small projects is they can be copied. Manufacturing, production, ultimately is about systems. And that's, I think, what's so fascinating about engaging with a company that makes things. A company called Zanat, that's based in Bosnia, not far from Sarajevo. 
And that's run by a former World Bank guy called Orhan Nitschik. And he set it up precisely um, to address the issue of not enough jobs. There's been a, a, you know absolutely massive exodus of young men from Bosnia because there's obviously nothing doing since the horribleness of the wars there. And Orhan wanted to address that directly. So he wanted to build on um, the carving skills that have been a part of Bosnian culture for many generations. He had them registered as, or pushed to get them registered, it's not his gift, um, as an intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO, and commissioned designers to make designs that would make those skills relevant for today. And not just relevant, but viable. Because in his words, he says, it's important that young Bosnians see a better future in their country and a future in craft, but it's essential that they are commercially successful. And that's why he works with design. So, you know, you really have a responsibility to come up with something that in some way integrates those skills, but is not only um, valuing those skills, but also, you know, creating value for Zanat. And we worked on a project with them called Touch, which is a series of benches and tables, and now smaller pieces. But I think what's, what is really interesting is Orhan says that it's not just, in fact, a question of Bosnia and its specific needs, that if you think of what's going to happen in the world as a consequence of automation, you know, he gave the example of how in America they're probably going to use around 50% of manual jobs, mm -hmm. that thinking about design in terms of labour-intensive jobs like that, that requires skills, is actually something that designers really need to start to consider. Indeed. So an incredible range of projects that have enabled you to have a social, economic, political and ecological impact as you wish. And then, of course, then came COVID-19. So could you talk first about um, how it affected your working practice in the studio, design being very much a team operation and Studio Ilsa being a, a very discursive um, and communicative design studio. How has it affected your ways of working and how have you adapted? We were very lucky in that we were working on a number of design strategies when COVID struck and that it was something that you could continue to do. Although um, we did have one client who, and poor chap, he's never going to be allowed to forget it, boldly said, I've got balls of steel, balls of steel. So we're going to get through this. But six months later, he was definitely feeling that while we could get through this, building in the end, if you're going to do it well, requires physical presence. So certainly, while it has been possible to continue virtually, um, I think what we've all appreciated now is just how important physical contact is for creativity, for tactility, for imagination. Um, 
And in the studio going forwards, I am currently turning it on its head and we are going to have a space that's more workshop than office, I would say, um, and has, you know, prioritises different spaces for human contact, rooms, but also, you know, space for tech, basically, so we can communicate virtually. But the workshop, the physicality of what we do is going to be you know, front and foremost. The other thing that it has made us appreciate and navigate is working hours because obviously it's been catastrophic for mothers homeschooling and a full-time job are a nightmarish combination and so that has made us you know try to figure out every which way how to create uh, better working hours if you like that work for everyone including clients going forwards so that's been you know challenging but I think really great to have to wrap one's head around. I mean, bottom line, it's been an accelerant, I think, to understand what really matters about our work and how to make it work better for clients and for our team. Indeed. And can we look at the broader context of the impact of this tragic and anguishing pandemic on design culture in general, and whether it's also been an accelerant in terms of raising awareness of the importance of different issues in design? I think that there's no question that it has been. I mean, every job that is coming through the door right now has some element of social awareness, cultural and sustainability awareness, etc. And, you know, that was happening anyway, but it's, it is definitely more the norm than before. So I think that is great because designers can't do it on their own. I mean, you are part of a team and you need a client. Basically, you can educate your client up to a point, but they need to want to go where you're taking them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that designers are essentially optimists and utopians, and we're in a time where those values are more needed than ever, um, and that those skills will be called upon. You can't pretend it's going to be easy. I think money is going to be very um, short, and budgets will be cut, or at least there won't be any flexibility in them. So we're going to have to be extremely smart about how we connect with our projects. And there are going to be bad times. I mean, you know, there's definitely been times over the last year where I've been sort of weeping into my laptop. It's, you know, you sometimes feel like you're hanging on by your fingertips and, and you know, then it comes around. So I think it's about keeping the faith hanging on in there as well. And so final question, what are your plans for the future? Um, I think we want to continue essentially to do projects where we make values visible because in the end, what's interesting about design is that by making things real, it shows an alternative reality, no matter how small, like a Zanet or a Nanny. It shows it can be done, that it is possible. 
because reality is not a fixed thing. I mean, it sounds so obvious to us, but, you know, it doesn't seem to be to everyone. Be realistic, you know, is something people say all the time. But actually, I want to finish on, in fact, that wonderful David Grober quote that the Adam Curtis documentaries um, flagged, but there isn't a better one that the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we could just as easily make differently. Well, you're doing it beautifully tough, though it has clearly been at times. So, Ilsa, thank you so much for giving us such an inspiring and also realistic picture of a designer who has succeeded in combining commercial success with integrity while changing design culture. Thank you. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed the talk, it would be great if you would consider making a contribution which would enable us to continue our wider educational programs. And you can do so on sown.org. We appreciate your support and look forward to welcoming you back to the Sown again soon.